Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management bi-weekly geopolitical report for November 13th, 2023. I'm Phil Adler. Our government's foreign policy can seriously impact our investment accounts. But because these policy decisions often involve difficult immediate trade-offs, it can be challenging for us as investors to recognize and take advantage of long-term trends. Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady joins us today to offer a framework that can guide us. Bill, in this week's report, you revisit a subject you've discussed before, that we can view foreign policy through the prism of historical archetypes. Can you explain? Well, Phil, one of the pitfalls of analyzing foreign policy is that the categories are usually too broad to be useful. The usual breakdown is between idealists versus realists, but by having only two categories, the characteristics become so broad as to be impossible to highlight nuance. Our analysis is based on Walter Russell Mead's 2002 work titled Special Providence, American Foreign Policy and How It Changed the World. In that work, Mead examines four archetypes of American foreign policy and assigns a historical figure to that policy type. Using this method allows the reader to attach a person to the policy and, in my opinion, offers a more sophisticated analysis of foreign policy. And can you elaborate for us a little bit more how this exercise can help investors? Well, if we can determine what archetype an incoming administration is closest to, we can anticipate what sort of actions it is likely to take when it is confronted with foreign policy problems. One important note is that no administration is a pure archetype. They tend to lean into one of the archetypes, but to the degree they have lesser tendencies into others, it still might lead to surprises. But I think that assigning one of the four archetypes to a new administration is a much better way of looking at this issue compared to the just ideal versus real discussions. Well, let's let's briefly discuss these four archetypes. First, there are the Hamiltonians. They appear to believe that foreign policy decisions should be based on how much they help American business. Am I right? Pretty much. Their concern, first and foremost, is on economic outcomes. In general, this archetype wants foreign policy to further economic growth. However, throughout history, this group has been remarkably flexible about broad policy goals. For example, prior to World War II, this group was mostly protectionist. Populist groups were the ones that supported free trade to bring down prices and likely profits. When open trade became a key part of American hegemony, this group shifted to support free trade. When did this Hamiltonian approach to foreign policy wield the most influence? Its peak influence was during the Cold War. During the Cold War, there was a general consensus among business groups that labor had to be given its due, in part, in my opinion, to offer an alternative to communism. Thus, businesses grudgingly supported unionization as long as unions were not radicalized. Once it became clear that communism was waning, business support for labor waned. After the Berlin Wall fell, this group became full-throated supporters of globalization. Through the Cold War, this group dominated American foreign policy. Now, there was a foray into Wilsonianism during the Carter administration, but that was so thoroughly discredited that it took to the end of the Cold War to reduce this archetype's influence. Well, let's talk about the Wilsonians. They hold that American foreign policy should be morality-based. How has this view evolved through recent years? Well, as we noted earlier, Carter tried to make a Wilsonian shift. It, It did not go well. 
But once communism died, Wilsonianism had a resurgence. The first Gulf War was the last stand of Hamiltonian policy. President Bush's decision not to overthrow Saddam Hussein was seen by Wilsonians as not finishing the job, not ridding the world of a clear evil influence. From the standpoint of the Bush administration, going on to Baghdad would have led to complications that would have been difficult to control. During the Bosnian situation, the U.S. engaged militarily to protect Bosnian Muslims from Serbs, who were mostly Orthodox. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright chided Colin Powell with the former asking, why have this military if you don't use it? After 9-11, the second Bush administration used moral language to justify the Iraq invasion. We take particular note of the axis of evil language. This isn't the sort of language a Hamiltonian would use. The Iraq war dragged on for years with inconclusive results. It's arguable that the world is better off without Saddam Hussein, but the current state of Iraq is problematic. In an interesting aside, Brent Scowcroft, who was George H.W. Bush's national security advisor and supported the limits to the first Gulf War campaign, wrote a scathing criticism in a Wall Street Journal op-ed of the second Bush administration plans to invade Iraq. Scowcroft was probably the last Hamiltonian to hold the position of national security advisor. Next are the Jeffersonians. How does this group sharply differ from the previous two we've discussed? Well, Jefferson felt like the U.S. experiment was just too precious to risk having it tainted by foreigners. And so Jeffersonians are essentially isolationists. They harbor the same moral positions as the Wilsonians, but fear getting involved in the world will just corrupt the American way of life. They tend to avoid foreign involvement as much as possible and military involvement in particular. It appears, Bill, that the Jeffersonian way of thinking has gained favor recently, has it? I think so. Obama lead Jeffersonian. He won the nomination in part by his public stand against the Iraq invasion. When he allowed for a surge in Afghanistan, it came with time limits, which defeats the whole purpose of a surge. After all, if an enemy knows when you're leaving, they just absorb the punishment knowing that you won't stay. Obama's behavior in Syria was classic Jeffersonianism. The lack of follow-through on a threat showed that at heart, he just simply opposed deploying the military. Americans are not natural hedgements. We are mostly a nation of immigrants. And so there is a natural aversion to the rest of the world. After all, those immigrants came here. So in the absence of an existential threat like communism, reducing global exposure is a popular stance. Finally, we have the Jacksonians. What defines them? Well, this group is, at least according to me, the most uniquely American of the archetypes. It has similar characteristics of Jeffersonians in terms of global involvement. However, there is a difference. Mead suggests its roots are based in the Scotch-Irish that populated the Appalachians and the surrounding regions. These groups harbored an honor code that can be summed up like this. We don't mess in other nations' business. But if you attack the U.S., it's a matter of honor that we destroy you. And the only honorable end to a war is your enemy's unconditional surrender. Because foreign powers often misunderstand the Jacksonians, they tend to think they will avoid war at all costs. They underestimate their total commitment to destroying the enemy. The classic example of this is how the U.S. flipped from mostly opposing entering the European War in 1940 to supporting the annihilation of Germany and Japan after Pearl Harbor. In general, America wins its wars due to the support of the Jacksonians. What is uncertain is how this archetype gets managed under the constraints of nuclear weapons. There really can't be unconditional surrender between two nuclear powers. Our discussion seems timely, given the approach of federal elections. What foreign policy archetypes are evident today in our political parties? 
Well, all the parties contain at least three of the archetypes. The Democratic Party establishment is mostly Wilsonian, although there are Hamiltonians in there in terms of international economic policy. The progressives are all Jeffersonians. On the GOP side, the establishment is also Hamiltonian, although there is a clear streak of Wilsonian that seemed to die with the second Bush administration. The populist right is mostly Jacksonians. A better way of thinking about the archetypes is it isn't about party, but candidate. Since presidents have a rather large impact on foreign policy, knowing where a president sits is a better guide to where foreign policy will go. So to sum up, which archetype seems most likely to prevail in the near term? Well, I think the isolationist archetypes are becoming dominant, so Jeffersonian and Jacksonian types. I would argue that the Biden administration is mostly Wilsonian, as the support for Ukraine would suggest. But there is a streak of Jeffersonianism as evidenced by the chaotic exit from Afghanistan. In addition, the anti-trade industrial policy themes exhibited by the Biden administration are also Jeffersonian. Bill, how are your expectations reflected in the Confluence Investment Management Investment Outlook? Our gold and commodity positions are consistent with the U.S. that is less involved in the world. So is our international positioning. We think there are opportunities abroad, but not in the broad indices, at least on the emerging market side, which are China-dominated. Do you think, finally, that there is any likelihood that a new form of foreign policy thinking, perhaps a, a mix of these archetypes, might evolve? If the U.S. is going to maintain its hegemonic position, it needs a Hamiltonian policy stance. Jeffersonian and Jacksonian archetypes are not consistent with hegemony, as they both want to avoid global involvement. And the Wilsonian archetype doesn't work in practice because Wilsonians can't discern which issues are critical to American interests and which are not. At present, Hamiltonians are committed to the expansive trade policy of the 1990 to 2020 world that is no longer politically sustainable. If the U.S. is going to remain the world's hegemon, the Hamiltonians will need to adopt industrial policy that will be more favorable to labor and likely less profitable to firms. Our expectation is that the U.S. will end its hegemony, but we do understand there is a chance the policy could change to allow hegemony to continue. We think the odds are small, but they are not zero. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.